longtime friend of Calvary Slow, and I cannot tell you how much of an honor it is to be back in this building. Um, I met my wife, actually, at the college ministry at Calvary Slow, um, back when we were meeting at the Seventh-day Adventist building downtown, way back in the day. Um, James Ray married us. Um, we spent about 12 to 13 years here at Calvary Slow, and Brian and James are just massive parts of our lives and just shaping and, and really cultivating our love for Jesus. So, yeah, a lot of time has passed. Now I'm an old guy with a 16-year-old and a 12-year-old, and uh, we live in AG, and yeah, just until recently I was on staff with New Life uh, in Pismo, leading worship and serving on their teaching team. So, uh, yeah, my years here at Calvary Slow really shaped me in some amazing ways, so it's, it's fun to be asked to come back and teach. And when Brian, um, he called me, I said yes immediately. Didn't even, he's like, oh, I pray, pray and think about it. I'm like, I don't, I don't really need to. This is like a no-brainer. And so um, I asked him what I'd be teaching on, and he said, oh, uh, Jane, uh, John 8, the woman caught in adultery. It's like, oh, <laughs> Shoot, something just came up. I can't do it. Sorry, buddy. Um, so that's fun, right? Um, so let's just, uh, let's jump into the text. If you have a Bible, just raise your hand and somebody will get you a Bible. We're going to be all over the place. So we're going to, um, we're going to be in John 8, but um, if you remember last week, uh, Pastor Brian talked uh, through John 7 where the crowds and the religious leaders, Nicodemus, they all had different opinions about who Jesus was. And at the end of the chapter, they don't come to an agreement on who they think he is because like Brian said, Jesus' words were divisive. And so at the end, they all just go home. And that's where we pick up in uh, chapter 8, verse 1. Okay, I'll read it. Here we go. John 8, verse 1 through 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning, he came again to the temple courts. And all the people were coming. And he sat down and began to teach them. Now the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And standing her in their midst, they said to him, testing him, Teacher, this is the woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Now they were saying this to test him so that they would have an occasion to bring charges against him. But Jesus, bending down, began to write with his finger on the ground, taking no notice. And when they persisted in asking him, straightening up, he said to them, The one of you without sin, let him throw the first stone at her. And bending down again, he wrote on the ground. Now when they heard it, being convicted by their conscience, they began to depart one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone and the woman who was in their midst. So Jesus, straightening up and seeing no one except the woman, said to her, Where are those accusers of yours? Does no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. So Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Let me pray for us. Lord, we just ask that you would illuminate this text um, in ways that only your spirit can. We pray that you would just speak to us. Um, pray that you would convict where necessary, that you would um, just bring, bring peace to our hearts, Lord. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What I love about the Bible is like 
almost every time you read it, there's some new revelation that pops. You could read a story a million times, and all of a sudden you read it again, and there's something new. And I like to think of the Bible like those Russian nesting dolls, you know, those kinds of things. You, you open one up, and there's something inside, and then you, you open it up, and there's another thing, and another thing, and another thing, and another thing. And that's the way the Bible often feels like to me. There's just something more and more and more. And so as I was reading this passage, you know, you could, a typical exposition of this passage would lead us to talk about, like, compassion and forgiveness, right? So we would have the same compassion that Jesus had for those who make mistakes because, oh, but for the grace of God, we could be in the same boat. Um, we could, you know, talk about hypocrisy and how, you know, we should avoid it. Jesus says in the passage, let one of you without sin cast the first stone. And Jesus also says in Matthew 7, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For by what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And by what measure you measure out, it will be measured to you. Tongue twister. Um, you know, a typical exposition of this passage, we could talk um, about justice. Because Jesus, um, he doesn't, he acknowledges her sin as such, right? And he says, go and sin no more. So, he, he has that justice component to it, too. And so we could spend the next 30 minutes or so building out those points, and it would all be really good theology, and it would be practical advice, and, and I want to do something different. So, again, the Bible's like Russian nesting dolls. And so as I was studying this passage over the last few weeks, this new thought came to me as I was reading. And it's not, like, deep or impressive, so, so don't get your hopes up. But, but, it's, but it's this thought. Sin doesn't just happen. Sin doesn't just happen. There's some set of bad circumstances, paradigms, and behaviors that led to this woman being in this position where she has been brought to the temple, having been caught in the act of adultery. So think about that. I mean, like, don't, don't imagine yourself in that situation. But this woman, she's with someone who is not her spouse, and somehow people find out, and then they bring you to the church to be killed for your sin. That is really heavy. And the fact that the religious leaders care more about trapping Jesus than the issue at hand is a whole conversation for another Sunday. But, but there you are, in the middle of this crowd, thinking you're about to die, wondering how in the world you got there. Have you ever been in a situation where you wondered how you got there? Like, whether it's in a relationship with your spouse, your child, your work, yourself, how did I get here? Like, you're driving, and all of a sudden you're over here, and you're like, I don't remember driving those miles, because then you're here. It's kind of like that. Again, sin doesn't just happen. No one stands at the altar on their wedding day and thinks, give us a few years, and this will end very badly. Yet, that happens so frequently. How did I get here? And so often we have this idea of what our lives will be like, only to find out that the reality is much different, right? So no one, when they're planning their life, wakes up and says, you know what I want? I want to be completely mediocre. I just want to slide under the radar my whole life and just get by. If I get married, I don't want my spouse to passionately and unconditionally love me I want my spouse to tolerate me. My kids, man, I hope I screw them up so bad that they'll need counseling for their whole lives. My job, I really hope that I, I am just miserable every day I go to work, but I do it for 40 years and then retire hardly knowing my family and having to go for it. No one says that, yet that is the reality for most people. How do we get there? How does it happen? The answer is because we let it. Because we let it. Sometimes when we say, when we sin, we say, 
I fell, which lets off the hook a little bit because I think most of the time it's like I jumped. I, I knew it was wrong and I just, I just did it, you know? So I think that's probably a little bit more likely, but I think mostly our, um, our progression towards sin is like unintentional. At least it's not a conscious decision. Things just kind of happen. John Mark Comer, who's a pastor and author, says that we fight against three things, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So there's a war going on, and we don't fight against each other. Our fight is against the rulers, the authorities, the, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, right? Ephesians 6. But the fight is real, and it's often subtle and subversive. I know that I know Brian loves C.S. Lewis as much as I do, so here's my humble offering, C.S. Lewis. This is from, anyone read Screwtape Letters? Okay, good, so you kind of get, so it, it's, it's this story, incredible story where um, this character, Screwtape, he's a senior demon, is writing to his nephew, who's like an apprentice demon, and Screwtape says this, indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, Without milestones, without signposts, your affectionate uncle screw tape. So gradual, gentle, no sudden turns, no milestones, no signposts. But where does it lead? It leads to hell. Okay. In the past 30 years, there has been a 50% increase in unhappiness. We are a nation crippled. Anxiety and depression. Anxiety affects 18% of American adults and 25% of children between 13 to 18 years old. In 2016, there were twice as many suicides as homicides. It is the second leading cause of death for people ages 10 to 34. Yeah. Our culture and our children are literally dying for a better way to live. Because while the road to hell is gradual, it is a powerful, powerful force that is built on consistent patterns of behavior. Can anyone guess what is the last thing we do before we go to bed and the first thing we do when we wake up? Phones. Phones. Okay. According to recent data, Americans spend four to five hours on their phones every day. We check our phones 144 times a day. 78% of females claim to spend more time on their phones than with their partners. 64% of men say the same thing. 68.6% of people surveyed believe that screen time affects mental health negatively. But we can't stop. <laughs> Why? It's because we've created these mental patterns or ruts that are so hard to get out of. They just are. My point isn't just to rant about our phone use, although I, I won't. We see bad patterns in all areas of our lives, right? It's not isolated to our screens. My point is that if you don't think these small, seemingly insignificant, subtle and subversive practices are not shaping you and often not into the way of Jesus, you are fooling yourself. These things shape us. But most of us don't think about these constant and subtle forces that are shaping us. Uh, Victor Lebo says this in the Journal of Retailing. Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfactions, our ego satisfactions into consumption. The measure of social status, of social acceptance, of prestige is now to be found in our consumptive patterns. The very meaning and significance of our lives today expressed in consumptive terms. 
the greater the pressures upon the individual to conform to safe and acceptable social standards, the more does he tend to express his aspirations and his individuality in terms of what he wears, drives, eats, his home, his car, his pattern of food serving, his hobbies. We need things consumed, burned up, worn out, replaced, and discarded at an ever-increasing pace. We need to have people eat, drink, dress, ride, live with ever more complicated and therefore constantly more expensive consumption. We have fallen for that hook, line, and sinker. And folks, that was written in 1955. 1955. Okay, I'm not here to lay on a guilt trip. (laughs) I am just as guilty as anyone else in the room, but I bet you if we asked everyone in the room, do you want to be more like Jesus? What would we say? Absolutely. But if we want to be like Jesus, we have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. And the reality for most of us is that is incredibly difficult. Why? Because it's the narrow road. It's the picking up our cross and following him. It's dying to ourselves in some very real sense that I have not figured out, but it is painful. Matthew 16, 24 through 26. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so in this counterintuitive way, following Jesus, we find is the only way to actually live fully alive. And Jesus is offering us this life, but it comes with a cost. He says in Matthew 11, Uh, 29 through 30, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is comfortable and my burden is light. You guys know what a yoke is, tie two animals together and they carry a load. Okay, we don't want a yoke. We want a vacation. That's what we want, right? So it's like, thanks, Jesus, but no thanks. What I need is like just vacation. We don't, we don't want to be tied to Jesus. We want to be masters of our own domain. We want autonomy and freedom. And we don't know what's good for us half the time. And we make really bad masters. And so we need something outside of ourselves if we're, because we're prone to self-destruction. Um, Pastor Tim Keller, who passed away recently, he said, he said, 18-year-old me thought that 12-year-old me was an idiot. And 30-year-old me thought that 18-year-old me was an idiot. And 50-year-old me thought that 30-year-old me was an idiot. And 70-year-old me thought that 50-year-old me was an idiot. And I'm still an idiot. And I just resonate so deeply with that. <laughs> uh, so we, we are, I am an idiot. And I need Jesus' yoke because I make a terrible master of myself. Okay, so the thing about a yoke is that it always has a constraint, but it doesn't have to be a burden. And so we, humans, we need constraints. Um, Google bakes it into their business model. They have, they say, creativity loves constraints. So too much freedom can actually make us anxious and cause destruction. So we need boundaries or constraints, and so we seek them out even unconsciously. And the question is, are the constraints that we use healthy or unhealthy? For example, is the constraint of monogamy a burden? Well, maybe it's not the easiest thing living with a spouse, but it brings life. Promiscuity is actually a very heavy burden, even though there's freedom in it, okay? Is the constraint of a financial budget a burden? Yes, it is. It's not easy, but it actually brings more freedom than the removal of all constraints, which would cause financial chaos. 
Is the yoke of exercise, calorie counting, intermittent fasting, is that, what is that? It's a constraint that brings health because pizza, am I right? My son works at Palo Mesa, and he's like always bringing home these incredible pizzas at like 9 o'clock at night, and I'm just like, get behind me, Satan, you know, get away. Literally, last night, I had this amazing salad. It was so good. I had some salmon on it, and he comes home and just like pizza. I'm like, ah, oh, you stink. And I ate it. So, so I'm like not practicing what I'm preaching here, but uh, I'm trying. So there are forces like the world, the flesh, the devil, and pizza that are shaping us away from Jesus. Okay, we can all agree. So what we need is we need a counter-formational force greater than the force being exerted on us by culture in order to be shaped into the way of Jesus. Again, we need a counter-formational force greater than the force being exerted on us by culture if we are going to be shaped into the way of Jesus. And again, this woman in the story of John 8 and so many characters around the Bible, they didn't just get there, okay? They, the situation that they found themselves in was the inevitable result of the road that they had put themselves on. But man, praise God for his mercy, his redemption, and restoration that says that our worst days aren't our last days. Amen? And they don't have to define us. What defines us is who he says we are. And he says that we're loved, that we are children of God, that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that we are worth God putting on human flesh and dying the death that we should have died to be brought into a right relationship with him. Again, sin doesn't just happen, but neither does being shaped into the way of Jesus. So we've got to position ourselves in order to be shaped by Jesus. Again, it takes a counterformational force greater than the force being exerted on us by culture if we're going to be shaped into the way of Jesus. Uh, Vicky and I were talking about um, this verse at the gas station this week, as you do, um, Romans 12, 2. So um, it says this, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Um, anyone ever heard of neuroplasticity? Show of hands. Nerds. Cool. Love it. Me too. Okay. Neuroplasticity basically says that the brain is plastic or it can change based on what we give attention to. Okay. For example, the brain scans of violinists show growth in regions of the cortex that represent the left hand, which in violinists has to finger the strings precisely and it varies. Okay. Other studies show that the hippocampus, which is uh, vital for spatial memory, is enlarged in taxi drivers because that's what they give their attention to. So what we give attention to can physically transform our minds. So Romans 12 is saying that we have to both change the way that we think and we have to change our behaviors. But this is like a chicken or the egg problem, right? It's like, well, which comes first, the way we think or the, my behaviors? Uh, my wife and I have been to therapy throughout our marriage because, spoiler alert, marriage is hard. So we had young kids at the time, and um, we were talking about staying connected and, like, passionate with each other, and you just want to sleep or die or both. It's just so hard. And so our counselors thought it would be helpful for us to start holding hands more. And, like, by holding hands, it's going to spark this passion, um, but we didn't do it. We're not very touchy-feely. We didn't even try it. It just didn't sound appealing to us. So, you know, yeah, bad example. Um, husbands, it's kind of like when your wife says, I just want you to want to do the dishes. But nobody wants to do the dishes. It's not a thing. But I promise you, hubbies, you start doing the dishes and see how much your wife feels honored. Right, ladies? Right. Yes. Or like working out. Working out is awful. I hate working out. I hate it. Um, 
but I like how I feel afterwards, so I work out. So the discipline can develop the passion, and it's the same with our spiritual lives. The discipline can develop the passion. Okay. Uh, author James K.A. Smith says this, If our loves can be disordered by secular liturgies, things that we do and practice, it's also true that our loves need to be reordered or recalibrated by counter-liturgies, embodied communal practices that are loaded with the gospel and indexed to God and his kingdom. Desire itself is not enough to replace a lifetime of hunger habits that have been built up. Those have to be undone and replaced, and that is going to take practice. It's like who, if you want to lose weight or whatever, like the desire enough is, isn't, is not enough. You have to actually like put these things into place, right? So a couple of practical ideas. Uh, okay, so uh, the ancient Christian mystics, they had this idea, this concept called the three ways. Anyone ever heard of that? I hope not. It's really nerd level 10 stuff. Um, so it's like, it's this, it's a, a model for Christian development, basically, the three ways. And so basically, like, it's purgation, illumination, and union. So imagine three concentric circles, right? Purgation is the outer circle, and this is where we purge ourselves best we can of our sin, both the obvious sin and the motivating factors or the roots that cause the sin. And I think the best practical practice for purging sin is confession. And it's <laughs> truly awful. But... You, you want to get it out into the open, right? You want to get it out with people you trust, not like right now. Um, so with people you trust, get out in the open. But then there's this battle that most of us find ourselves in probably every day to avoid sin and not let it take root in our hearts, right? And the best illustrative practice I can think of for this, I call kill the scout ant. Kill the scout ant. So how many of you guys have had ant infestations in your home or workplace? It is awful, right? Okay. It starts with scout ants. What they do is they, they send these little monsters into your home, and they find a food source, and then, like, the other whole colony tracks their pheromone signal, right? And then you have a major problem. Uh, James 1, 14 through 15 says this, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it has run its course, brings forth death. So, again, kill the scout ant. We have to just nip it in the bud, not let it take root in our hearts, right? So, the problem is, like, simply having a defense, sorry, my problems, um, against sin cannot be the only vision that we bring to culture. It's just uninspiring, and it doesn't convey the richness and the depth and the beauty of the gospel. I mean, Jesus was compelling. Remember in John 7, some of the people said, we've never heard anyone talk like him, Right? There was a power and an authority that drove people to Jesus, and there was a power and authority that drove people to the early church, but people today are leaving faith in droves, young people especially. Um, David Kinnaman, he's the president of Barna Research, says that 22% of young people today have lost their faith entirely. That number doubled from 11% in 2010 to 22% in 2020, and it's probably gotten worse. And why do you think? I think partly because we have done an awful job in giving ourselves, our culture, and our young people a proper vision of the kingdom of God. What do most young people think about when they picture a Christian? They picture a white middle-aged guy in khakis trying not to look at porn. Like, 
that's kind of it, right? And I'm sorry, but it's just like not going to convince anyone. Like it's not enough. And so we have to show people the beauty, the glory of Jesus and the kingdom that has been inaugurated here and now. And we have to do it through the way we live. Um, A few years back, I wrote a book called Pink Flamingo, Shameless Plug. um, And I wrote it because I was trying to answer um, this question, this really simple question, which is this. What makes you and I as Christians any different from anyone else out there not following Jesus? What's the difference? We live, the way we live, is, is the way we live a compelling reason for others to follow Jesus? I mean, it's a serious question I think we should ask ourselves. Is the way we live a compelling reason for others to follow Jesus? Now, obviously, it's a work of the Spirit. The Spirit does all the work, but I think the way we live, it's kind of like, you know, all tied into it. And if it's not, how do we begin to live lives that put on display the glory and goodness of a God who's trying to redeem and restore his world? Anyone ever heard of rule of life? Oh, sweet. Very few of you. This is cool. Okay. Well, there's way too much, too much to, like, really get into it. Um, I, I taught a six-week class, and if you want to stay for four hours after service, I'd be happy to go through it with you. But basically, a rule of life is it's an intentionally ordered life set around rhythms and practices that help shape us into the way of Jesus. Okay, and this, this concept of rule of life is not new. It's actually a very ancient practice. Uh, the word rule comes from the Latin regula, so it's not rules, um, it, it came to refer, that word, um, came to refer to a trellis. Okay, so imagine a trellis. It gives vines the support they need to grow, the maximum amount of fruit, because they're lifted up. It also um, keeps them free of predators and disease, right? So rule of life is like this trellis of our lives that help us to, helps us to bear fruit and to um, sort of like reduce sin or something like that, basically. So basically, we need the same thing. We need the structure for our lives, it helps us to live well through the pace and the practices of Jesus. And the thing is, you already have a rule of life. You might even have come in not knowing what it is, but you already have one because you have specific things you do, practices, the way you spend your time and your money that is shaping you. And the question is, is it serving you well? Are your rhythms and your practices shaping you towards or away from Jesus and his kingdom? John fifteen five says, uh, Jesus says, abide in me and you will what? Bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nada, nothing. Okay, so I'm doing this thing. It's called Primal Path with my son. He's 16. It's a six-year spiritual formation journey. It started when he was 13. So the night before uh, his 13th birthday, I had my wife take him to dinner. And it sounds intense, but it's called a severing dinner, where basically she says, I love you, but when you come to me, I'm going to push you back into the community of men. So severing dinner, she gave him gifts. The next day, on his 13th birthday, I took him on this ceremonial journey to my hometown. Uh, we, he didn't know where we were going, but we had, like, stops along the way. I took him up this high mountain. I gave him a journal and a pen. I talked to him about vision. Went to my first, where I had my first job, I gave him a wallet. We talked about responsibility, on and on and on. So that was, that was like, three years ago. So we're halfway done with this primal path journey. If any of you are familiar with New York pastor uh, John Tyson, um, he did something familiar with his son, and he developed a framework for this process that we've been utilizing. 
And it's amazing. But one of the things I tell my son every day, and if he were here, he would just like moan and complain. The thing I tell him every day is, there is no formation without repetition. There's no formation without repetition. We are shaped by the subtle and subversive things of our culture, so we need a counterformational force to shape us into the way of Jesus. So don't get me wrong. Like, Sundays are great, but one hour on a Sunday won't shape anyone. It's going to cause a spark, and the Spirit's going to do something. But we have to have our rhythms and practices set in order for the long haul, or as Eugene Peterson says, a long obedience in the same direction. Okay? Long obedience in the same direction. So it's the day-in and day-out rhythms and practices of Jesus that we need, to, we need in order to be shaped into the way of Jesus. So my son and I, every, every weekday, in the morning, 6.30 or 7 or whenever I can get him to wake up, we uh, do a little devotional. We spend some time together. Every weekend is man school, where we kind of we do some kind of a recap for the, the things we learned that week. And then every 10 weeks, there's a challenge day where we put into practice the things that we learned through that shift. And... Um, the last challenge day we had was a few weeks ago, and we spent 10 weeks studying the life of Moses. And the challenge day was a 10-mile walk from our house in Royal Grande to Avila Beach with many challenges every mile. Now, you need to understand, like, most mornings, um, it is a struggle to even get him out of bed and to the kitchen table, like, let alone engaged in the discussion. Do any of you have teenagers? They're an emotional vault. It is so hard, so hard to crack. The challenge day, it didn't go well, you know. Um, filmed it all. You can follow, you know, follow me on Instagram. You can see it. It did not go well. The first few miles were fine. He did okay. But then the middle was just absolutely brutal. We got in a fight. It was not great. It ended okay. And most of our weekdays together feel kind of like that. It's just an absolute slog. And this is how our apprenticeship to, apprenticeship to Jesus can feel, honestly. It's just like we're putting in the work, but we're not sure if we're going anywhere. But there's no formation without repetition. And I promise you, my son, somehow, someway, is being shaped by the repetition. And I might never see fruit, but I know that God, Jesus' word never returns void. So it's doing something. So I've got to remain faithful. There's five key themes. I am running out of time. There are five key themes that I want my son to really know and get down deep in his bones, and the same thing for us. And they come from this great book by Richard Rohr called Adam's Return, which is a book on male initiation. It's super good. I really encourage you to read it. Um, Rohr calls them five promises that every man, but man and woman, need, they need to learn. Here they are. Number one, life is hard. Number two, you are not that important. Number three, your life is not about you. Number four, you are not in control. Number five, you are going to die. So it's like real, real rainbows and butterflies kind of stuff. But, you know, the reality is for anyone who's lived long enough, you know that this is true, right? You know it's true. And so I'm trying to get um, this into my son at an early age because the quickest way to a path of sin and hell is to, like, think that you're the center of the universe and the whole world revolves around you. It just will not work out well for you. And so I remember John Tyson, who uh, created the Primal Path framework, he was, um, he was in town a few months back, and, and we were talking, and I was, I was talking to him. He asked me how I was going with my son, and I was like, I was, well, I was whining is what I was doing. And just like, it's so hard, man. He just won't wake up, and I don't, it's like, is this worth it? It's just so much effort, and I just don't know if I can keep doing it. And John said, yeah, that's true, but you know what's worse? Regret. Oh, dang it. I know you're right. So we keep on doing the things that we know will produce fruit in time. Again, rule of life, 
practices are not the point. We're, we're not trying to engineer an outcome. We are trying to be made into the way of Jesus, right? So they, these practices are a means to an end. And ultimately, the Holy Spirit is the only one who can really transform us as we submit our lives to the way of Jesus. Um, author Richard Foster says, he, he wrote Celebration of the Disciplines. It's amazing. Um, he says, the practices alone can do nothing. They just put us in a position where something can be done. So we have to submit ourselves to the work of the Spirit. We've got to pick up our cross. We've got to follow Jesus. We've got to build our lives around the way of Jesus. But, like, why? Why are we here? Why are we studying John 8? What's the point of all of this? Okay, I have two minutes and 30 seconds. We're going to land the plane here. Okay. Why? Because God is redeeming and restoring his world. In the first book of the Bible, God says the world is good. And by page two, you and I have completely jacked it up. And in the last book of the Bible, it says this, Revelation 21. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among the people, and he will dwell with them, and he shall be there, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. So, God will complete the work he began, and for some reason, he has chosen you and I to help in this process. I think it's a bad idea, but I didn't decide. He did. So he has invited us into this process of redeeming and restoring his good world, being his hands and feet. And you guys, there is only one of you. There has never been anyone like you in the history of the world, and there will never be again. God knit you together in your mother's room, womb, room? Looks like a little room. In your mother's womb, with specific talents and skills, knowing full well the experiences you would have, good and bad, that he can use to usher in his kingdom that no one else will be able to do. So do not waste your life. You are called to reign with Christ as royalty, and you are called to redeem with Christ as a priesthood. Even if you've ended up like this woman in John 8, Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Your story isn't over. Okay. N.T. Wright says this about our vocation. I use the image of the people who are working on a great medieval cathedral and the stonemasons in the yard who are told, you've got to carve this bit of stone like this and thus. And this guy is probably fairly illiterate. He's just doing what he's told. He's got a chisel and his hammer, and the stone. And that's what he's got to do. If somebody said, what are you doing? He probably wouldn't say, oh, I'm building the great cathedral. He would say, I'm building, working, or carving for the cathedral. The cathedral is the larger project that the architect and the master mason are responsible for, and he's working for it. Time's up. Then, when the master mason comes around and he collects up all of those carved stones, they get up on the old rickety wooden scaffolding, and then the stonemason looks up at the west front of the cathedral, and there's this little bit of carved stone. Carved the way he was told to carve it, meaning far more than he could have ever imagined, because it now joins up with a thousand others, and together make this great design. That's what I see in the work that we're called to do as Christians. There's only one of you. So do not waste your life 
God wants to use you in ways you can't even imagine. You're going to be one little thing in this great cathedral, but without you, it's incomplete. So I think we just need to take on the yoke of Jesus. We've got to start building our lives on him. We've got to allow the Spirit to transform us through the ways that we think and the things that we do so we can help usher in and paint this incredible picture of the kingdom of God in a culture at war. Amen? All right, let me pray for us. Jesus, we're here this morning because we just submit ourselves to you again. We, um, we're bad masters, but you are a great shepherd. And so we thank you for your kindness. We thank you that where there is sin, there is forgiveness and compassion, that you don't condemn us. We thank you that it's your kindness, actually, that leads us to repent. And so we come this morning and we just give you all of our sin, all of our doubt, and we say, take it and transform it into something beautiful by the power of your spirit. And would you give us the, the grit and determination and passion to build our lives upon you, to set rhythms and practices in our lives that help shape us more and more into you in your image so that we could just be a part of what you're building in your kingdom. So Jesus, we just thank you. We love you. We pray in your name and all God's people said, amen.